This is an ABC podcast. There's a kind of visual language that's quite bright and magazine-like. It's not trying to be naturalistic. It's highly artificial. You know, we're white fellas imposing ourselves on this place on one level too. But it's also the only home we know. So it's kind of, it's a bit confusing. Home can look very different when you step back from it. And I think visual art reflects the strangeness of home and the truth of it in ways other art forms can't. Well, I would say that because this is The Art Show. I'm Rosa Allen coming to you from Wurundjeri Land. And on this episode, we're going to meet two artists whose works play with, scratch the surface of and agitate the places that produced them. We'll also step into the light-filled Dutch interiors of Johannes Vermeer, he of Girl with a Pearl Earring fame, and learn about some intriguing technology he used. He must have studied the image of a camera obscura. He uses his experiences to make paintings much more illusionistic, to make paintings much more beautiful. That's the curator of the world's biggest ever Vermeer exhibition. It's all coming up here on The Art Show. Mark Valenzuela migrated to Australia from the Philippines when he was in his 30s. Mark makes hand-built ceramic sculptures inspired by Filipino mythology and his own personal history. And he assembles them in quite theatrical installations filled with hybrid creatures like the uh, Alewaris, a slithering prehistoric-looking thing that gets around Adelaide. Mark also draws on his ceramic sculptures, so they have a scribbly, animated quality. But other pieces are realistic enough to be fully surreal, especially the human ears and pig's heads. And as you're brought in and out of his magic realism, you realise those rows of little ceramic ducks look like they're sitting in military formation. And maybe violence lies beneath the surface. I visited Mark at his home studio in Adelaide on Ghana land, where he's also setting up a space for artists from Southeast Asia to visit. And like all good conversations, all good morning conversations, it started with a coffee. So we have three different beans at the moment. Yeah, I have been making coffee for a while now. So I roasted my own beans, but I've been playing or brewing for a while. And um, the, the beans are actually coming from the Philippines and single origin, like micro lot, micro farm. I've got like a drawer. Oh, look, you opened this drawer of beautiful ceramic cups. There's yeah. like a hundred. Mainly uh, artists from the Philippines, ceramic artists from the Philippines and uh, mine too. This is from John Petijan. He's the pioneer of contemporary ceramics in the Philippines. My dad is uh, used to be in the army and uh, yeah, we move around whenever my dad gets assigned somewhere or like in the southern part of the Philippines in Basilan and Tawi-Tawi. We used to travel with him as the whole family. We used to live in, you know, army base camps. So I actually have that first-hand experience with military formation and even, of course, violence. You can see that. A lot. It reinforced my practice. So that uh, one work, for example, is the, the 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 show that I did for the Biennial, the Adelaide Biennial. There was this like uh, you know a company of ducks. So a, a company has two or three or even four platoons. So I somehow recreated that, but using ducks with you know different dif- different masks because it's compulsory in the Philippines to be to be part of the you know. Um, military training. So yeah, I used to be the battalion commander and when I was in high school and then and again, I took advanced R- ROTC when I was in uni. Actually, you're wearing kind of military colours, I just realised. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's probably just really natural. <laughs> you go to fatigue. Yeah, yeah, I love it because it's very, you know, earthy colour and you easily camouflage within your surrounding. There's an ongoing conflict, right, between the, the Philippine government and, and Muslim Filipinos for an autonomous region around Mindanao. Was that anything to do with why your father was based there as a soldier? Yeah, yeah, it is. Like uh, He used to live in, in um, Bicol, um, but when he joined the military, he was assigned in Mindanao because of that 
armed conflict there. So, yeah. So you sort of grew up among very regimented, conservative community. What was your exposure to art or to, or to artists? Not at all, because, like, you know, in the military, there's no art in there. I mean, you know, probably that's art. That's one way of looking at it. Like, maybe that's art itself, you know. But I, I don't think it's the pretty creative in that way <laughs> it's the opposite of you know progressive in them sorry but yeah it's quite it is quite conservative and regimented and yeah even my dad is very you know <laughs> straight <laughs> was it, when was the first time you started picking up a pencil and wanting to wanting to express yourself creatively well when i actually moved out from the house to central philippines to study and then I met a lot of, you know, creative people and I have the skill already because ever since, you know, that's my way out, you know, keep on making drawings and being creative. That's because that's another world. And then I, when I moved to Central Philippines in, in Dumaguete, that's the beginning of everything, you know. Did you formally study art? No, I didn't. My background is actually, I did accountancy first, dropped out management and then engineering, but there was no fine arts then. So, um... I took engineering because engineering is the closest thing to fine art, so yeah. I can see how that would be of use in, in building things. When did you first get your hands stuck in clay? Is there a sort of a ceramics tradition in Dumagate? Yeah, so Dumagate or even in the whole Philippines in general, like backyard material is a thing. So we don't have, like especially in the province, you don't have uh, access to like, you know, those fancy canvases and fancy oils and, you know, uh, materials so you go to your backyard and try to aside from found objects you dig you dig your backyard and that's clay already and then you process it so I used to uh, dig my own clay the soil is very volcanic and um, and there's a dormant volcano even beside in Negros Oriental in, in, in the Maguete city and uh, yeah so around it there's plenty of clay so dug my own clay processed my own clay and then built my own kiln, that was it. And then engineering just expanded that. I'm wondering what sort of other art was influencing you or if you were even aware of it. I know there was a, a sort of social realist art movement happening in the Philippines at that time. Did that inform your work? Yeah, probably, but I don't, I don't really call myself a social realist. But I think that's a thing in the Philippines. It's a, it's a phenomenon in the Philippines because artists are socially engaged most of the time in the Philippines and are there art collectives is that is that important plenty of art collectives in the seven in the 70s or in the 80s there's like the social realist group and they're still alive at the moment so that actually you know even the curator that I met at first who traveled to the province uh, most of the time traveled to the province and discover artists and work with artists and mentor artists so I had a luxury meeting him and then probably he he influenced me or so so was he from manila or some yeah, a big big yeah. his name is bobby valenzuela so it's 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 funny because there's so many valenzuelas in the philippines but they're not all related but bobby valenzuela found you discovered you yeah so he's coming from that platform that that social realist maybe not 100% but that influenced me as well so and again like um so what i said before that artists in the Philippines are the, the frontliners of change in my country because there's no other, like you can't rely on the government. So the artists are actually doing a lot. How did your family react to you being an artist? Well, my dad always says like, this should just be my hobby. and <laughs> Don't take it seriously, but whatever he says to me, I'll just do the opposite. <laughs> so yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, they took it. Now, seriously, now, but before, they were very uh, cynical about it before, but now it, they, they somehow understand me now, so, which is good. You were talking before about your exhibition for the biennial Once Bitten, Twice Shy. As you said, it was an installation that took the form of these corrugated iron roofs, the, the tops of, like, of shacks almost in a shantytown, yeah. and then sitting all over them like, like a sort of um, military... Brigade was a flock of little ducks, ceramic ducks, and imaginary creatures in old tyres. And there were also details of ceramic pigs' heads at a market. It had a sort of third world feel to a Western viewer. Yeah. But I'm interested in you sort of recreating that, the theatre of it. What did you want the viewer to experience when they saw that? When I was making it, I was thinking about 
you know, I will make that to be as as immersive as it can. So that's probably one of the theater element of it. You can be really in part of the whole installation. And yeah, so there were tires, docks, pigs' heads everywhere, pigs' heads on the on the wall. I somehow just like mimicking the idea of Filipinoness because it probably come just comes out naturally, but also that was more of like a conscious decision. My life is, you know, from the I'm from the Philippines, of being Filipino. So in that way also I could interrogate the place where I come from at the same time, present it in a in a different way, in a different environment, you know. And you know like when you you move out of your country you actually can see more. Yeah, what did you start to see when you migrated to Australia? What did you start to understand about the Philippines that you hadn't before? Well, it's kind of like a, I'm sorry to say, but it's kind of like a violent culture, you know, like violence is everywhere. And uh, when you're there, you somehow like think that, oh, this is normal or this is part of it. But here, we, it's, it's different when you're here. Like life is precious and in, in some cases, when you go back where you're in the Philippines, life is somewhat cheap there. And I witnessed that personally. So it's, 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 it, that should change. So, yeah, so um, I saw that more. Because once you're in there, it becomes normalized. So that's why, like, the pig's heads and everything there, is the, the, those are just all representational. But not all bad. I mean, there's so many good things there. The community, I love the community, the way we, the hospitality, the resilience, everything. That's why, like, I, I recreated those tires, reinforcing the roofs. We're sitting in a ring of fire. And we frequently visited by calamities and uh, also typhoons and, of course, earthquakes. So strong winds is a thing in the Philippines. So it's actually like during, get visited like more than, probably more than five or six strong typhoons every year. So you can see that in, in many places, like in, in the roofs of many houses, they reinforce the roofs with um, tires. That's butchery that you're talking about that you depict, the sort of arms and pigs trotters and ears strung up, fingers cut off. Yeah. Is that, is that you kind of processing that violence and that danger in a humorous way? Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, because, because I don't know how, because they're very morbid, but they're also funny. They're also funny at some point. But also, like, when you go to, when you go to like, the province, like, see, like, makeshift structures that sells pig's heads. And, you know, it's, it's the street art in the Philippines, you know? Like, you see that. You see a lot of tires on the road saying... Uh, vulcanizing. So I love, I love that because it's, again, the inventiveness of sustainability of things. You know, we don't just throw, we recycle, reuse, and, you know, we find a way to make use of a thing. You often, you turn these tires into these hybrid creatures. So they'll have like a little duck head or something yeah. coming off. Because the hybrid creature, I can see, you know, you're straddling two worlds. Yeah. But is the hybrid creature something that only started once you once you'd migrated to Adelaide? Probably that's a little bit of that, but uh, I've been doing that for a while because uh, animism is a thing, and hy hy how do you say that? Hybridizing. Hybridizing. It's a stupid word. Yeah, it's a stupid word. <laughs> Putting things together is it's a, an ongoing um, thing in the Philippines and and most Filipino artists. So yeah, we. Yeah, and, and that stems from pre-Catholic yeah. older animism. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's way, way before the idea of surrealism. Changing the tire into a ducky, for example, it provides me a little bit of freedom. Of you know, when you make a specific object and you have that object in your head, and you get bored and tired of it, you wanna somehow give it another layer of meaning as well. So you cut that, add something. So yeah, so that hybrid came out as well again. Was mythology and folklore, you know, a, a part of your childhood? Did you, did you learn it from somebody? Yeah, it, it's a thing in a community, even in, we're living in a base camps, but also we lived in other places as well, not just in military base camps. But again, like storytelling is a big thing. Do you bump into mythology? almost every minute of your life. So, <laughs> so it's, it's around, so it will always come. Some of those creatures, specific, like actual creatures from mythology or more sort of 
part of that that world? More, more so of like being hybrid already. Okay. One perfect example is the the banana heart. I made a few banana hearts there, based on that mythology or myth about catching the. It's an amulet or like a, that liquid pearl or what whatever you call it that drops at an exact time, and then you have to catch it. Once you swallow that thing, you you become invincible. From the banana? From the banana heart, the banana blossom. So oh, there's, yeah, a, yeah. there's a thing that comes There's an dewy inside. and Yeah, so according to legend, you have to wait at the exact time before it drops. So you catch it with your mouth and then it gives you superpower. It gives, makes you invincible and, and bulletproof. So the amulet idea. And you made these hearts that look like that. Yeah, I made this heart that looks like that. And there's like creatures around it waiting, lurking, waiting. Because this is based on mythology. Whoever catches the banana, uh, the pearl or the, the, these creatures from the underworld will, will attack that human being. And again, I, that's again emphasizing the idea of like mythology that actually justify violence, you know, <laughs> and patriarchy. Like makes you bulletproof and makes it can only be acquired by a man, you know. So, again, I'm emphasizing that through myth-making or mythology. Who was in power when you were growing up? Was it Ferdinand Marcos? I was born in the eight, 1986, Coria Hino, and after that, Ramos and Estrada and, and the rest. Yeah, so I had five years, I was like five years, uh, six years old when during the, the, the Marcos Senior. And my dad was a soldier then, so. But during my childhood years, like from six to my elementary years, it was the Aquino. And then Ramos after. These revolving political dynasties. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a thing there. So political dynasty is a thing. We're talking about this sitting in the very peaceful suburbs of, in Adelaide. Yeah. How did it feel setting up your practice here? I mean, did you find an art community here or did you kind of just continue on from where you'd left off in the Philippines? Well, it's always like that. There's always that difficulty in, in once you move to another space, there's always that difficulty of looking for people to work with or, you know, or even people to, to notice you or whatever. I was just doing the way I did in the Philippines. I used to do a lot of organizing exhibitions and, you know, gathering people for, for a project. So I just realized, like, oh, I, I could do that here too. What's the difference? And and it gives me more uh, more people to work with, not just Filipinos but also Australians. So I was able to invite people from Southeast Asia in the Philippines, partic- in in particular, and then bring them here for a residency and then or an exchange and then and vice versa. So, so yeah, you, you so bring the scene to you. Bring the scene to <laughs> maybe yeah, but this was like ten years in the making. So I cannot wait for you know, for people to notice me or whatever. But I was longing for people to work with, even up to now. So I, I want to keep on doing that. Because it's a good thing, you know. Like, it's a good thing, like, doing independent stuff. And you just do it because that's part of you. You want to do it, <laughs> you know. And you don't wait. The, the beauty of being here in Australia is that we have a good grant system here that really supports artists, and you just have to apply. And then that's beautiful because we don't have that in the Philippines. So I made use of that in my practice recently. But I cannot apply for people coming in. But that's that, that's okay. That's just a bonus. I mean, you know, they can apply for their own grants. But <laughs> but I like that. That's that's beautiful. We have a good support system here. Mark Valenzuela, thank you so much for speaking with me and um, well, and making me a coffee. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mark Valenzuela. A monograph of Mark is published by Wakefield Press, written by Belinda Howden and Anna O'Loughlin, who's also Mark's partner. You can find links on our program page. This is The Art Show. I'm Rosa Allen. Johannes Vermeer is sometimes known as the Sphinx of Delft because so much mystery surrounds him. You know, only 40 of his paintings have survived that we know of. But I think about just two of those paintings, Girl with a Pearl Earring is one, and The Milkmaid, some of the most famous paintings in the Western canon. 
And when the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam announced it would bring as many Vermeer paintings as it could together for one exhibition, it sold out in three days. Vermeer's paintings are famously smaller in real life than you'd think. There's so much detail and subtlety in those 17th century Dutch women and their interiors, but also an illusion of depth. And how he achieved that is really interesting. Gregor Weber is a curator of the blockbuster Vermeer Show and head of fine arts at the Rijksmuseum. And I started by asking him, why is it that there's never been this many Vermeer paintings shown together before now? I think every painting by Vermeer is the highlight of the museum which owns this uh, painting. So it is difficult, of course, to ask a museum which have one or two or three Vermeer paintings to, uh, yeah, to give them for loan. But we could start with uh, our own paintings, four paintings in the Rijksmuseum. And the Mauritshuis in The Hague is a partner of us, so there are three. So we had already seven. But we heard also that the Frick collection in New York um, is rebuilding and that therefore the three paintings they own are possibly um, also loanable. So we asked for them and we got them. So 10 paintings out of 37. Yeah, 10 out of uh, 37, yeah. So this means we had already 10. This means if you have 10 in your pocket, then you can go to the other friends you have in Washington, in the Metropolitan Museum, New York, or elsewhere, and ask there. So this was a starting point, and it was a little bit to get gifts, uh, uh, so that at the end we are very proud to have 28 paintings. And can we assume that Vermeer painted more than 40 works in his lifetime? Yeah, we think uh, we know of five more paintings because they are mentioned in old inventories or old auction uh, catalogues from the 17th and 18th century. And so there were five more, let's say a little bit more than 40 paintings. And in the beginning, he makes such a lot of big steps in his development as an artist that we think that there should be more in the beginning. So maybe he painted 45 or maximum 50 paintings in his whole life, which is also not very much, of course, for an artist of the 17th century. Vermeer was from Delft, a city in the Western Netherlands, um, the home of Delftware, that blue and white pottery. Yeah. There's two works in your exhibition, The Little Street and The View of Delft. Are these the only landscapes he painted of his hometown? Yeah, he painted normally uh, interiors, so little rooms in, in houses. But two of his paintings were outside paintings, so The View of Delft, which is really a marvellous painting, a big painting, a large painting, with a very illusionistic view of the city. And um, when you enter the city, Delft, and you are on the Flemingstraat, which means the street where he painted the little street, it is a house of his aunt, we know now. So both paintings uh, from outside have something to do with his own life, Delft and the little street, so the house of his aunt. And we know from the old inventories that there must have been one more little street. So we are searching for that. Maybe it's, it is in Australia somewhere. Must look a little bit like a premier painting and we would be very glad to add it. Can we, oh, can we talk about the little street? I love that painting. Yes. Is that a recent discovery that it was actually Vermeer's aunt's house? Yeah, it is. Um, it, the little street is really an astonishing painting because it is also exceptional in the whole uh, 17th century Dutch art. Normally they paint famous buildings like the town hall or the church or a whole square in the city. But a, but a portrait of one house is uh, yeah, an exception. And there, therefore there had been a lot of um, research about this uh, location. Could have been the view out of his own atelier, could have been uh, the house of his parents or something like that. But at the end, a professor of the University of Amsterdam uh, got it because he saw that there are two little ports, two little doorways depicted close to each other. And this is also exceptional in the ground, um, sorry, in the maps of Delft of that time. And it is only at this special location on the Flamingstraat, 4042, where this happens. And by accident, it was the house of the aunt. So therefore, we are now sure that Vermeer made this exception because it was the house of his aunt and the house was also an old-fashioned house. 
which survived um, fire and death in the 16th century. So it was also a an, an remarkable house because the features are, um, yeah, also in the time of Frimea, all already old-fashioned. Yeah, you can see it's got plastered cracks in the brickwork yeah, and old whitewashed walls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, you know, it's depicted very, very carefully. And um, we know also that the aunt got some money when later um, in the 17th century, in 1654, um, the gunpowder tower in Delft exploded. And therefore, a lot of houses were destroyed or other houses get some defects. And she got money from the um, from the administration of Delft to repair it. So it is also one reason more. And that was a really big event, wasn't it? The, the gun tower exploding. But your biography, Gregor, reveals all the religious and social turmoil that was going on. I think I'd assumed Vermeer was Protestant. No, yeah, Vermeer was born in a Protestant family, so in 1632, and we know nothing about his education and so on. Only when he married uh, in 1653, there's a next document, and he married into a Catholic family, a real strong Catholic family, and his mother-in-law had been also associated with the Jesuits. So there was another surrounding for the young Vermeer at that time, and we see that his early paintings are Catholic. So he started also with that. And then, of course, he um, developed the scenes with fashionable um, yeah, young women, young men coming together and so on. But there's also again a, a time when he came back to Catholic subjects. So it is more differentiated than we, we believed until now um, that this artist also had his um, um, relation to the Jesuits next door. They lived really next door to a hidden Jesuit church in Delft. And normally all the um, inhabitants in Delft should have been Protestant, but there were still, um, I think, around a quarter, 5,000 Catholic um, believers in Delft, and he belonged to them. His, he baptized his son Ignatius, which means after the founder of the Jesuits, Ignatius of Loyola, and so on. So there was really a relationship between them and Vermeer. So what what is behind that change in focus then? Like the honesty and the detail of a Vermeer yeah. home interior is so different to a religious painting. What drove that change in his subject matter? I think that he, um, of course, he was an artist who must earn money, of course, and he saw that other paintings are more in fashion in the at the end of the 50s of the 17th century. The same is true also with other artists like Rabelais Metsu or Emmanuel de Witte. Also two artists, they started as history painters, but switched at the same moment as Vermeer too, to these genre paintings, to these interior paintings with modern high-class figures uh, doing something with music, letters, and so on and so on. So I think it was more the fashion of the time so that he changed. And it was in the same time that he had some had a couple in Delft, a Messina's couple, Peter van Reuven and Maria de Knoet. And these two bought 21 paintings during the lifetime of Vermeer. So I think 50% of his output yeah, were, were in one collection in Delft. And they were Protestants. And they bought all these little paintings, also the view of Delft in the little street. And they bought um, yeah, a woman reading a letter and all these things. So I think... He earned a lot of money by selling fifty uh, percent of his output to this couple. So there must have been friends some, in some way. Wow! 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 And they must have had also some influence of all these um, subjects, because if you buy twenty-one paintings, then you say, "Oh, Fremier, you had just made the woman reading a letter to the left. Please, how oh, I would love to have them her to the right." I mean, and then he's kind of known for these remarkable paintings of women doing ordinary things, pouring, you know, milk and, and making lace. and People are interested in the late 50s um, of this uh, yeah, normal life depictions. And there had been also some examples before, of course. Also in Delft, uh, there had been one artist, Willem van Udekerken. I think no one knows this artist, but he had already painted women uh, busy in the kitchen, cleaning uh, the, the little boards and so on and so on. 
So Vermeer is also depicting that, but then in this very, very special manner, yeah, with all this light and full of colors and so on, which is so remarkable. But also in his oeuvre uh, where he is depicting women, there's a little group of paintings where he is thinking about the subject more deeply. And this is, for instance, a woman with a balance in Washington, which is also in, in the exhibition, a woman looking to a balance or scales. And behind her, you have the last judgment. So we're again a bi biblical religious uh, subject. And which means uh, during the last um, judgment, all of our souls are also on a scale because then they will be decided if you go to heaven or to hell. So there's again a relationship between the, yeah, the genre piece, a woman with scales and the really religious background behind her. So this is, yeah, he's thinking about also these subjects to combine again also with a genre scene. Uh, some more deeper thoughts. Obviously, you say we don't know where he learned to paint, but the woman with the balance, you know, is is a very defined with line. And then yeah. the milkmaid, you know, has bread that is so realistic. It looks like you could reach in and tear some off. But yeah. up close, it's quite sort of splotchy. It's got an interesting technique he's, he's used. Yeah, this is really, yeah, very, very remarkable. If you look to the milkmaid, then you see a woman standing at a table and there's bread and she's mixing the bread with milk. If you look carefully, then you see that uh, in the back wall, in the whitewash back wall, there you have uh, nails and little holes of nails, which are absolutely clear in focus. But the bread in the foreground is absolutely out of focus. It's only painted with little dots yeah, from sparkling light. And this is something which Vermeer started around 658 with these effects of something is in focus and other things are not sharp, are not in focus. And there, I think there's also an influence of uh, the Jesuits because they were so busy with all the optical effects, which they used for um, yeah, yeah, religious, theological things, and among them with the Camera Obscura. The Camera Obscura is a sort of uh, miracle. In that time, um, and an example also for uh, the eye. So how we are uh, looking, how we are, um, how is our perception working? You you can study with the camera obscura. It's truer to how the human eye works too, right? Like you don't have razor sharp focus on everything at once. I think so. And if you look to all these paintings of Vermeer starting in fifty eight, then you see these effects of. Yeah, focus and unfocus and also sparkling light. And uh, it had been an idea, I think, already in the beginning of the 20th century that Vermeer used it. And it is a normal, it is not a, a wonder to use it because um, we read also in one of the treaties about painting by Samuel van Hoostraten that he also had learned uh, to, to use the camera obscura with the Jesuits in Vienna and also in, in London and elsewhere. So there is something in the air in that time that the camera obscura could, could teach you how to understand your own perception. You must have been up close to more Vermeers than anyone in the world. He's not using a camera obscura in every scene he paints, though. Like, the girl with the pearl earring has no space behind her. Yeah, I think if you had one time understood uh, the effects of light, uh, which you can see in the camera obscura, then, of course, he used them also, uh, not always looking again and again and again, but also the girl with the pearl earring. If you look carefully, then you see that the contours of her face against the black background or the dark background are so soft painted and there is no line between the the nose and her cheeks, so that also that yeah is so unusual. Every other artist would have made their line to indicate here's the nose and here the nose is ending, but for him it is only the the value of color and not the um, yeah the drawing lines um, normally artists used. So it's, he, it is only the illusion he's depicting, but not, um, let's say, the, um, the, the skeleton of um, the depiction. Also, the same is true with the pearl. So it's a, it's a girl with the pearl. 
Um, and I got a lot of questions. Is the pearl really existing? Is it made of glass or what it is? Because it's unusually uh, big. Yeah. And it should be a costly pearl. Um, too, yeah, too expensive to have uh, in the house of Vermeer. But uh, it is only the illusion of a pearl which Vermeer is painting. So it is, the question is wrong. He, he would love to show us uh, the illusion of the very expensive, costly pearl. And this is what he did only with two strokes of color, a white one and a sort of moon-like one in a little more gray tone. Perfect. Indeed. The other tantalizing mystery is the identity of his people. You mentioned, Gregor, that he had a big family, lots of daughters. Are they likely, you know, to have modelled for him? Of course, we would love to identify every person on the paintings of Vermeer with a special person, but uh, with a special name. But unfortunately, we don't have any, yeah, any documents saying this is my wife and this is my daughter. But he had eight daughters and his eldest. His daughter, um, Maria, she was born in 1654. So maybe the girl of the Perdering shows a woman of uh, 13 years, 14 years old or so. Then it could have been uh, one of the daughters. But she's so idealized that I think it is more a fiction of uh, beauty, which uh, Femia depicted here. That clear light that streams through an open window, yeah. is that particular to Delft or like a special time of day? What's the, the quality of that? Where did he get that from? Um, I think it's particular for Vermeer. So it's really, he is, yeah, I think I, I never saw another, another artist in the 17th century who also used green in the shadows of skin. I don't know. I never saw it. In the very early Italian art, so in the 15th century, Italian artists used a green beneath the skin tones, and then they added the, the red and so on, the skin tones, and then there's a natural shadow also greenish in the skin. So, but this is very, very early paintings by Pintoricchio and other yeah, 15th century artists. Gregor, thanks for making time to speak with me. I, I know the exhibitions received such glowing reviews by critics, and it also brings your own time at the Rijksmuseum to a close. So it must be a huge landmark to end on. Yeah, of course. If you may do such an exhibition at the end of your working time at the Rex Museum, I retire after that. Um, it's, of course, great. Yeah, it's the crown of your work. Gregor Weber, head of the Department of Fine Arts at the Rex Museum and one of the curators of the exhibition Vermeer at the Rex Museum in Amsterdam. And he's the author of Johannes Vermeer, Faith, Light and Reflection. This is The Art Show. Let's head up north, via photography, that is, to Humpty Doo in Darwin's rural area on Larrakia land. It's where the photographer Liz Fenwick grew up, a saturated landscape of red soil, towering termite mounds, mango farms, and a predominantly white rural subculture. Not long ago, Liz found some photo negatives taken as a teenager in Humpty Doo that were kind of disturbing. And though 20 years had passed, Liz decided to use those pictures as part of a series about the world they came from. The project is now a photo book called Humpty Doom. And I met Liz at the accompanying exhibition at Melbourne's Hillvale Photo Gallery. Humpty Doo is a little town that is on Larrakia land. Um, and three generations of my family live there. Uh, and I've been making art there for about 10 years. So in the book, you say that the pictures you took as a teenager haunted you. I'm interested in them. I mean, you were taking them presumably on, I don't know if it was a digital camera or like a Kodak film camera. But did you consider yourself a photographer then? Or were you just taking pictures of your friends? Yeah, so the earliest photos in this exhibition and in the book series, Humpty Doom, were images my friends and I made uh, for the purposes of selling to an older man for a bag of weed. And he wanted soft porn images of our bodies, which is a pretty disturbing tale in a way. And I found these film negatives uh, about, yeah, 10 years ago and was shocked by them and embarrassed and wanted to destroy them. 
but a little tiny part of me and my brain was like, hmm, maybe there's something interesting here I can explore uh, in a project. And fast forward 10 years and this is what we're looking at now, a response to these images of our young bodies uh, sexualized like uh, Playboy, basically. She's sort of posing in a really naive, suggestive way in like pink underwear with a, that classic early early 2000s Playboy bunny, which became really mainstream and popular yeah. uh, among teenagers, <laughs> teenage girls for some inexplicable reason. I remember it. The patriarchy, yeah. yeah. They got us. Um, did you did you end up handing that photo over? Did you? Is this about reclaiming it? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. As you say, her pose is naive and there is a kind of humorous empowerment in this image that inspired quite a lot of this series. Like, there's a stereotype of rural towns as being quite shitty and I wanted to complicate that and have fun with it. And one way of doing that is by taking this image, which is kind of ambivalent. Is it horrible or is it actually her... you know, finding a way to become empowered within the patriarchy. So it's that ambivalence that's kind of carried through to the rest of the series. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a troubled place in many ways. Uh, there was a federal government report in the year I graduated high school that ranked my high school as the second worst in Australia. So it's not a place that gives you tremendous advantages. And I wanted to be conscious of that, but also just not get trapped in that because there's no opportunity if you just are kind of trapped in that way of seeing it. If you look around, there's also some really special things there, and that's something that have focused on in this body of work. The termite mounds, the magnetic termite mounds, incredible. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different tropical trees that are just unlike anything you'd encounter in Brunswick. Um, and so I guess in terms of nihilism, there was a temptation to kind of fall into this way of thinking uh, that it kind of leads you to, but what I think is more interesting is resisting that and that story of resisting that uh, and trying to find things that are actually really important in this place. Uh, And one of them is an awareness of Aboriginal perspectives, uh, which are really strong up there. And, you know, as a a kind of naive white follower, I'm not gonna try and um, say I know really anything about things like connection to country or understanding kinship relationships to trees and uh, plants, animals, rocks even. But when you look into it, there's a really beautiful way of thinking about the things around us as kin and the interconnectedness uh, of things. And so I photograph my family and I photograph the land and I photograph the connection between them. But of course, my family, they're third generation settlers. Uh, They haven't been there for that long. We're clumsy in our ways that we interact with the land. Um, So in the imagery that I created, there's a kind of visual language that's quite bright and magazine-like and brash. And it's not trying to be naturalistic. It's highly artificial. You know, we're white fellas imposing ourselves on this place on one level too, but it's also the only home we know. So it's kind of it's a bit confusing. Well, let's move on to the landscape and that the joy that you have claims in this, in Humpty Doom. I mean, the, the magnetic termines, I mean, they are astounding when you see them out, out in the bush. D- did your view of the landscape in Humpty Doom change? Did you find it more interesting and, and more intriguing? Mm. I mean, I think the feeling was always there. Like, I grew up roaming around the marshlands. There's incredible marshlands around Humpty Doo. I grew up roaming around those marshlands, and I'm just never happier than when I'm doing that. You've always loved it. I've always loved it. Um, you know, no shoes running around, you know, things on fire. It's extreme and joyous and, yeah... I hope that's in this work. Like, it's not just this sort of nihilistic doom quality. There's also the Humpty quality, which is, you know, these incredible termite mounds, which I've photographed, I hope, a bit like a model. They're like wonders of the natural world. They absolutely are. And so I photographed them like they're kind of sexy models. Um, They're the protagonists of the image. These aren't landscapes, passive landscapes ready for human intervention. These are active elements of the landscape that have their own agency and, uh, you know, 
are maybe a little bit scary on one level. Well, they're like citadels, that there's more termites than there are humans in Humpty Doo. On the whole planet, there's 10 times more termites than there are human beings. Um, and they are completely responsible for regenerating the earth. Without them, you know, the dead wood would just pile up and pile up and would be buried under it. Um, so they're an incredible force, and I've tried photographing them in a way that looks at them differently. Can we, let's move on to the, the, another nature photograph. It's the understory of a whole variety of tropical trees. Uh, these trees in this image are actually on my parents' block in Humpty Doo, and they planted these trees in a kind of desire to make their space, like lots of people do in the top end, a kind of tropical paradise which actually doesn't suit the climate up there at all, the wet, dry climate. It's savanna landscape. It's not designed to suit, in most places, permanent lush vegetation. So they have to irrigate it. Um, and this palm and the mahogany, they're introduced species. Um, there's a real tension in this image for me about this beautiful plant life that has grown there that my parents planted, but also a kind of plant life that's actually really not designed for that place and is only, yeah, yeah, it's only there and like a lot of Darwin, it's only there because of extraction from the earth of water, irrigation, year-round irrigation. Um, and it, I guess that speaks to something a bit more broadly that I'm interested in, in Humpty Doom as well is this idea of develop the north, which is still floated by many, um, many people in the government. As a it's, white it's an government. eternal catch cry, isn't it, up there? Absolutely. You just, it just won't, it won't, go, it won't change and it won't go away. There's a develop the north conference every year. You know, we're in the sixth mass extinction crisis and, and yet this idea of developing the north through industry persists. There's a relationship to mainstream Australia that's quite different. It's a very peripheral place. So it allows you the opportunity to look back at the mainstream because you're so separate from it and think about, you know, what, what are we actually doing to this place? We're on the kind of frayed edges of things there. And when things start falling apart and unraveling, you really know about it. Uh, and I think that there's an opportunity to remake the way we do things up there. We just couple of activists and artists uh, kicked Santos off the Darwin Festival board last year. Uh, they did this sort of, they were funding the festival and giving, given naming rights to the festival. Uh, and them being removed, I think, is a really brave and important step towards ending this kind of greenwashing that big industrial companies do. So there's some hope as well. It is this audience of people in Melbourne, I mean, it's such a comfortable life here. Not for everyone, of course. Like, I'm not trying to say it's, like, perfect or something, but a lot of people live a really comfortable life, very separate from the industrial projects that actually give them that comfortable life. So it's, it's no one's fault, but it's just quite easy to be oblivious here to what's happening in the rest of this continent. Um, and I'm not saying, like, we have some special access to it or something, but it just happens to be that the... You know, the lithium mine that's powering our green revolution is just down the road from Humpty Doo. Um, we see the mining that's involved in the... There's so many Teslas in Brunswick. And I just, every time I see one, I think of the, the Finnis lithium mine. So there's just kind of this gulf, which is why I'm interested in showing in Nam, Melbourne. Famous egg. Yeah, yeah, our um, school shirts. There's a picture of me in my school shirt in the show. And our school shirts at Humpty Doo Primary had Humpty Who on the front with, with Humpty Dumpty the egg and Humpty Doo. List that photo is so cute with your little mullet. Yeah. We've got to, we'll move on to that. Yeah, I, um, I, I wanted a boy's haircut as a, a little girl and, and mum wouldn't have it. Uh, so I cut my own hair the night before school photos. It's funny that the editors of the book, Bad News Books, uh, from Aotearoa said, oh yeah, we'll put that picture of your brother towards the end. Who's this guy? That's my brother out fishing on the Mary River. Uh, and we wear these sun buffs uh, to protect us from the, the sun out on the water because you just get sunburnt very quickly. Um, but he looks, he looks quite fierce, like the kind of archetype of um, rural masculinity. Um, he's got a, he's got a, 
a uh, Slipknot-like <laughs> mask going on with a skull, um, yeah, wraparound shades. Yep, and a, and a hat with a, a raging bull on it. Um, and it's this kind of tension between this, this masculine archetype and uh, some of the images around it uh, that are filled with a kind of decay. Um, like this pool, it's actually our pool that uh, roots grow into. Is that, a, is that a, a swimming pool? Yeah, it's, it's on our block oh, in Monty. Yeah. yeah, there's a couple of images of my nieces in here. They're pretty wild, free-range children too. I just chase them around with a flash unit, basically, flashing away. Your dad passed away a couple of years ago, and is the, the book's dedicated to him? It is, yeah. yeah. He passed away in, in 2021 uh, after a, a, a battle with, um, with a number of different illnesses. Making a lot of the images in this book came from thinking about him and his legacy in the Northern Territory. He came up there when he was a young man working as a fitter and turner, and he really had a view of development that I think was shared by a lot of people in that era uh, about making something of yourself and making something of the territory. And I think that ultimately hurt him in a big way. Um, Physically? Physically and mentally. It took a big toll on him. He worked really, really hard, too hard, and didn't know what, you know, a life could be in some ways. Um, your, your parents came out, settled in Humpty Doo. Did they build their own home? Yes, yeah, yeah, they built their own place. Um, they didn't have a whole lot of, of money. Um, during Cyclone Tracy, Dad had trained to be an electrician just prior to that, and obviously a whole network of electrical things got damaged in Tracy, and Dad worked and saved up a bit of money, and they bought a block in Humpty Doo together. Mum was only 18 when she, she went up there from Mount Isa. Um, and yeah, they're kind of, my parents are my heroes in a way, like mum's such a strong lady, I can't even imagine the hardship that she faced growing up um, without any money, um, without much of an education, in, even in high school, um, and has just, yeah, she looks like Rambo in this photo. <laughs> she does. She looks bad. really badass. <laughs> She's got a, we might describe it. it. Well, this is actually unusually is a sort of motion picture, which everything else is, you've captured a moment. But I mean, it's funny because she's standing still, but the image is blurry, like she's on the move. Does that encapsulate something about her? Absolutely. You can't keep up with her. She's a little, little fire. She's a tiny lady, but she's a firecracker, yeah. She's lighting a cigarette. She's wearing, um, what, what are these shirts called again? Well, they're fishing shirts, fishing shirts, which everyone wears in the Territory. But this is actually HD Hunting Supplies, which is my brother's company, Humpty Doo Hunting Supplies. And he makes all of this merch with, like, his pig dogs on it and his... Um, it's a bit, you know, the, the, the wear is a little bit scary, particularly when you take it out of context in Melbourne. You might look like a kind of far right wing person or something, but it's just normal back there. Everyone wears it. There's a very sensual quality, which I'm trying to create in the images through the colour and the texture. Despite you portraying kind of like infrastructure and, you know, pools sort of in a state of decay, there's no sense of decay about this landscape. It's forever regenerating. And I love your use, I love your, the way you photograph all the ants and the insects. There's a big, there's a one photo we didn't mention, but there's a, a blue cap sitting on a fence post just covered in little insects. Are they termites? They're northern sugar ants, actually. Oh. But good guess, because termites also have a nuptial flight. They also grow wings to create new colonies. Um, but yeah, that's spot on what you say about even though there's a lot of decay in the images, there's no sense of decay. That's really important to me. This isn't a place that I've left behind. I still live here. My nieces are growing up here. I think about their future. What that? What? What is that going to be like? Uh, so it's really important that it's a living landscape for my family and for me. Liz Fenwick. Humpty Doom is published by Bad News Books and a selection of the photographs is on at Hillvale Gallery in Melbourne until May 28th. And there's also an artist talk as part of the NGV Melbourne Art Book Fair this Saturday, if you're in that neck of the woods. Well, that's it for the show this week. Big thanks to producer Lisa DeVissi and sound engineer Tim Simons. You can follow The Art Show on the ABC Listen app. I'm Rosa Allen. I'll see you next week.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.